Welcome to episode 57 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And today we are going to go back um, to Publishing 101, and we're going to talk about querying and representation. Did y'all catch Kelly's new title change? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have joined a literary agency. Yay! Yay! I'm very excited. So yeah, we will talk a little bit more about that in future sections, but um, yeah, so that I just wanted to announce that for our listeners, Ke- Kelly is now open for queries. Yay! So awesome. So yes, Publishing 101, we decided to do this because the last time we did this sort of intro into publishing was like over a year ago. Mm-hmm. So we figured it was time to kind of revisit it to see if we had anything new to say about querying and representation. Um, and so we kind of gave a general overview, but I guess let's, let's talk about querying and representation from maybe slightly different angle this time, which is from the people receiving the queries, (laughs) since you will be one of them. Yeah. Um, in our first episode, which I probably should have listened to in its entirety before starting again. It might be really painful, though, to go it, back that far. It is. It's also because, like, our audio is not quite right yet, and it's, like, just, like, kind of, like, awkward. It's like reading your old writing when you're just like, oh, God. <laughs> um, but we did, I think, believe, we believe we talked about best practices for querying, what to do, mm-hmm. how to go about it, etc. So I figure we'll talk about querying from the other side about what agents are looking for in a query, what makes a good query stand out. We talk about these and also in our query critiques, which we should probably do again Mm -hmm. at some point. Um, We'll open that up for like semi-yearly slash quarterly query critiques. Um, But like what an agent is looking for. And then once you decide to represent an author, what you do. Mm Mm-hmm. When you send it on submission. So, I mean, when it comes to queries, what are you looking for in a good query? Um, In general, I think you want a query that is concise, that tells you the story um, in a clear and understandable manner um, that that hooks you. It has to be enticing. It has to be something that makes you want to read more. But, you know, you and I are really big. Uh, we talk a lot on this podcast about clarity and how important it is in your writing and in queries. Um, and that really, really is a vital part of it. But, um, you know, it's a tease. It's a tease. It's a pitch. It's a hook for your for your novel. And so you want to think of it as kind of like a bite-size appetizer, something that's going to intrigue people and interest them and want them to request more of your work. Yeah, I would say the most vital part of writing a query is to actually follow the instructions. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, guys. (laughs) You would not believe 
when I, I remember when I was reading the slush as an intern, how many people just never followed guidelines mm-hmm. and indiscriminately just sent queries out without understanding that, you know, some agents require different things in their query. They say, please put query in the title, in the subject line, please attach the first, or please not attach, please paste like the first five pages of your book into Mm -hmm. the body of the manuscript. You know, they have very basic instructions and I mean, a huge chunk of queries that come in, particularly by email, less so by snail mail. If people even do snail mail queries, they do, but like, really old school, old school agents do snail mail queries, but you know, just people who are not paying attention to what the agent represents, didn't, you know, read what the agent was looking for. That just automatically disqualifies you. you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've only been an agent for five minutes and already I've had queries that are not going to the right email address that are not for the right genres that are, you know, just not at all following any kind of guidelines whatsoever. So yeah, if you want to go really back to the first step, absolutely <laughs> follow the instructions that you're given, which does make it hard to mass query. And it should, because you really shouldn't be mass querying people. And by that, certainly what I mean is that you're not going to blind CC a bunch of different agents and send you know the same query to everyone. Um, when you query to agents, you might end up querying you know, 20 30, 50 agents before you find the right match. But that should be a measured process at which you've researched people and you're going through series of, of sending your queries out, you know, first I'm going to send it to these 10. And then when I hear back from them, if they're all rejections, I'll send it to my next 10. Um, and, and by following, if you really are following each agent's individual guidelines, it kind of makes it impossible to mass query because every agent is going to have a different process. Some are going to want attachments, some aren't, you know, some want other information. Um, and in a way, I'm sure that's frustrating for people who are trying to get their work out there, but you really can think of it as a benefit to you. Stop and slow down and make sure that you're querying the agents that you're most interested in working with that you think are the right fit for you um, and pay attention to what their guidelines are. It's a little bit like applying for a job. You know, a mm-hmm. query is essentially a business letter, like a like a cover letter for your work. And if you're applying to jobs, you're not going to just sort of willy nilly write a, a cover letter and then blind CC everything, everyone that you're applying to, it it doesn't reflect well on the person applying for the job, and it doesn't really reflect well on the person querying if it's clearly something that's a mass email. Because this isn't a, a relationship that the agent is trying to establish with you and that you are trying to establish with the agent. And I really mean a relationship. It's not, it is a business partnership, of course, but even business partnerships in non non publishing related fields are predicated on relationships mm-hmm. <clears throat> on good communication on you know making sure you speak to each other making sure you are on the same wavelength so when you disregard an agent's you know explicit instructions on how to query them then they know they're not you're not going to be a good business partner for them mm-hmm. you know i know a lot of people think that agents are you know like only out to get a lot of money and of course it's nice to make money <laughs> it's nice to make money whatever you do but you know just because something is a sure sell or something is super commercial doesn't necessarily mean that an agent will take it on mm-hmm 
So, okay, that's kind of basically what we're, you know, what agents are looking for in queries. So then what makes you decide to take a client on? What makes you decide to offer representation? Um, I think it's twofold. One is, you know, my personal connection with the work, you know, do I love this work? Do I believe in this? Do I connect with this on some level so that I can advocate for it passionately um, and advocate for it sincerely and, um, you know, defend its worth? So that's part of it is my own personal connection. And, and that's why you say a lot of times agents will pass on things that are great, but they'll just say, you know, it's not right for me. I'm not feeling that connection. I'm not the right person for this project. Um, so that's part of it. And then the other part I think is, um, the business sense. Is there a clear place in the market where I feel I can sell this book? Is there, do I have a long-term view for this author and a career path that I think that I could guide them down? Um, you know, it's, it's business and art in yeah. a sense. <laughs> you have to have both pieces, I think, in order to offer representation because, you know, if you find something that, you know, you're sure is a slam dunk mass market hit, but it's not really your personal cup of tea, then you're going to be kind of lukewarm when you're pitching it, even if it's a slam dunk. And, you know, if you really super duper love something, but you just have no idea what editors you would submit it to, or, you know, whether or not readers are interested in this kind of thing, you're just going to be treading water and not get anywhere, even though you love this work. So I really do think that you need to have both pieces in place. Right. It's also, it's like, it's why agents specialize in specific genres of fiction, because it's what they like to read, what they are passionate about. And because of that, they would know where to send these projects, these types of projects. For example, I am not familiar with the romance genre. So I, well, I am sort of, I'm not a reader of romance, but I am familiar with the market. And I know people who edit and acquire romance, but it's not something, I mean, if I were an agent, I wouldn't request romance because I, I wouldn't know where to place it. I wouldn't know which editors at which houses. I wouldn't know what their tastes are. And I don't read enough romance. I do read romance, but not enough to necessarily get a good handle on the tropes or the storylines or the different market places or the different conventions. Because romance in its own, on its own is actually kind of a different publishing beast from the rest of of publishing, mm-hmm. um, partially because it is just the the volume of publishing that that romance produces every year far outstrips pretty much any other part of publishing. Um, so you know, there's that aspect of it. You need to know who you're going to recommend this this book that you're trying to represent to, and in the hopes that you'll get a sale. And there are other books that I remember as an editor, of course, not as an agent, but as an editor, I would get books and that I really loved that ultimately I knew I could not buy because I knew I would not be able to get my house on board. And it's kind of the same thing. You know, a lot of, I know a lot of writers do get discouraged when they keep getting rejection letters that just say, you write really well. I really loved it, but I, you know, I don't see a place in the market for right now, or it's, you know, it's not for me and they want more information. I know writers want more. They want a why they want a concrete why, and then they can fix it. 
But to be honest, there's that sort of ineffable, intangible part of publishing that is taste. Mm-hmm. You know, you can recommend something to somebody. You know, this is just in your own private reading life. You can recommend a book to somebody that you love. And your friend might be like, it's okay. You know, like, it's, you know, I enjoyed it fine. But they don't have the same fervor that you do. You know, that's just the way it is. It's just a difference in taste. Yeah. <laughs> So when it comes to representation, so you've offered representation to a client, then what are the next steps that an agent would do or take? Um, it depends, but so let's say this is a debut author. Um, most people querying are, haven't written anything prior or published anything prior. Most agents, um, now do a lot of editorial work. Um, I intend to be pretty hands-on editorially with my clients. Most agents really are nowadays because, uh, the market is so competitive that you really want to send editors your clients best, um, in order, you know, to get through ed board and everything else on the other end. So if you are offered representation, um, well, the first thing that happens is you would receive a formal offer. And most agencies have an agency agreement that the author and the agent sign. And that agreement just details um, the, the terms of your relationship um, and the financial relationship between you. So um, the standard agency commission is 15% of all monies coming in. So advances, um, royalties, all monies that come in that flow to the author, um, the agent will take a 15% commission on. Um, it does vary slightly. If you have a full service agency that has, um, a rights department, then I think foreign commissions are often 20% because they include a cut to the foreign sub agent as well. But your author agreement will, will detail all of that. Um, it will detail, um, the, scope of the agreement. So some agents do an agreement just for this work. Um, other agents, you know, their author agreement, um, is for any works that the client may bring forward. Um, agency agreements are almost always at will that either the author or the agent can terminate at any time. Um, so it'll be a basic, simple agreement. It's usually one page to max, um, that will just detail, the agreement between you and your agent. Um, so you'll get an official offer of representation. If you choose to accept the agent will send you this document that you will then both sign. You'll get a copy of it for your records. After that though, um, usually your agent will do some editorial work with you. They'll kind of sit down. Um, they'll, you know, basically like an editor would, you'll probably get some kind of an editorial letter or a phone call going over it. And you and your agent will discuss the strengths and the weaknesses of the book. And then you'll probably do some revisions before it goes out for submission. During that time, while you are off doing your revisions, your agent is probably going to be putting together their submission lists. They're going to be putting together the lists of editors that they want to send your book to. Um, so those would probably be the things that happen first. Right. So I know a lot of people do ask, well, if an editor is going to edit my book, why do I need an editorial agent? Mm. The honest truth is, so it's pretty rare that a book is going to be perfect when you're querying and correct me if I'm wrong, but you're really sort of looking for potential in a book, right? When you're yeah. looking to represent something, you're looking for the, you're looking for what the story could be. 
And I think nowadays in particular, I mean, some agents aren't very editorial at all. True. I, I have received submissions from agents that I know to be not particularly editorial. So when I get manuscripts in, then from that particular agent, sometimes I know that this isn't as polished as I think I need it to be. And I think in the past, when it when publishing was actually smaller, when there were fewer people in publishing, it was actually easier to get by with that. But not anymore. It's quite competitive. So a lot of the times the non-editorial agents are looking at it from a business perspective and they're pitching the book to you on a business perspective. Um, and sometimes that works for a house, sometimes that doesn't. I remember when you're a younger editor, you need to have a manuscript come in as polished as possible in order to convince your higher-ups that you are you should take a chance on this project. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the more senior you become in the ranks as an editor, you know, you the more inclined the publishing house will be to take you on your word that this will work because you've proven yourself. Mm -hmm. You've been vetted. You, you know, acquired books successfully to publication. So mm -hmm. but when you're younger and it is easier for younger editors to acquire, but it does take more work on their end to convince their publishers to give them money to acquire a book. Yeah. And there's the workload issue too. I mean, editors have a heavy workload that involves a lot more than just reading books and talking to authors all day. And editing is time consuming work. And if you have to take a manuscript, you know, from that really rough stage and bring it up, that's a much bigger time investment than it is to take something that's already in really good shape and then give it that final polish that it needs. Right. And even after you've worked with your agent to polish your manuscript and your book does get bought, your editor will probably still require you to make further changes on top of that. Mm -hmm. um, often for a debut who's been through several rounds of revisions with their agent already, will probably get sort of critiques or comments from their editor. Be like, oh, let's, you know, we should trim the word count down. You know, it's a little bit too big. I mean, I cut a significant, not a significant, but a pretty big chunk of, of Winter Song down from its submission length to its publication length. Um, my editor also had me take out a storyline, like a minor subplot. Um, you know, these are all things that she thought were, would make my book tighter, you know, and a better read. And she was right. Um, and we also then talked about the ending of my book, which I think I mentioned that I rewrote pretty much entirely. So, and it's not that my editor, my agent, when she was giving me revision notes on my project, didn't do any work because she did. We all, we also worked on the ending. Then we talked about strengthening it. You know, we talked about tightening it down, you know, all of that was already done. And we got to the point where we think, okay, this is good. This, this, the story structure is sound. So this is ready to be submitted. And then my editor took that and then polished it even further. So mm -hmm. I think you'll notice, I know a lot of writers can be touchy about that. Like, why do I need so much editing? But it's not about, it's not a judgment on your work. It's just making something as polished and to be frank, as marketable as possible. It's the whole thing about literary fiction to go a little bit on a tangent, a literary, you know, what is considered literary is not actually the house's call it is everyone else's call. Yeah. 
It's not the writer's call. First, your first your publisher is probably going to decide that you're going to be literary and then push you for awards. But it's still up to the people giving the awards. It's still up to the librarians and the teachers and the whoever to deem something literary. Literary is a weird beast. So often when you, at least when I remember when I was working as an agent, I would get queries and they're like, this is a literary work. And I was like, mm, but do you know what that is? <laughs> so I guess then submission. So how are you deciding who to submit to? Um, you know, different agents do it different ways. I think, um, you know, I'm just starting out. I actually personally haven't sent any submissions out myself yet. Cause I've only been an agent for like three days at this point at the time <laughs> of this recording. Um, but you know, I know that for me, um, personally, my philosophy and the things that I've learned from being in this industry and watching great agents work, um, I really believe that you research your editors as thoroughly as authors should be researching agents in that you want to find the right people um, and the right publishing houses for this work because a lot of imprints kind of the imprint itself has kind of like a brand identity and, you know, editors themselves, just like agents have taste. They have the things that they like that they're looking for. Um, so I think one of the things that new agents, um, really ought to do, one of the things that I'm doing is, um, building editor profiles. I'm reaching out to people and saying, what is it that you are interested in? What do you like? I'm researching the things that editors have acquired in the past so I can compile, you know, lists to understand their taste. Um, and then it's matchmaking. It's, it's finding the right chemistry between editor and author and book. Um, you know, so I think it is really a, a process that requires, um, thought. You don't just you know, rattle off a bunch of names and send it to whoever, um, I think your best chances, um, of successfully placing a book and getting an author a deal is by doing that research and, and choosing the right people. Yeah. It's the same thing when you query, you don't want to query willy nilly. So you don't want to mm -hmm. send submissions out willy nilly. So then say you get offers of, you know, you get offers from editors. Mm -hmm. How would you help guide your client to making the best decision? Mm -hmm. um, I think that whenever possible, if the editor is willing and the author is willing, um, I would love to put them on the phone together or put them in touch in some other way. Um, because I think that you know, there's a lot of factors involved. There's the deal itself, you know, there's the money, there's the terms, you know, there's the general, you know, actual deal on paper. Um, but there's also the publishing house. There's also the individual ed editor that you're going to be working with. And, you know, you're like your agent, um, you're going to be working with your editor for the long term, And you want it to be somebody who understands your work and you want it to be somebody who understands you and who you feel like you trust, um, their sensibilities. And when they give you feedback, you're going to trust that it's the right thing for your book. Um, so I think if you're, if you're choosing between, you know, a couple of different offers, um, I would always want to put the author and editor in touch and, and let the author get a feel for the person they'd be working with and, and let that influence their choice. Yeah. It's, I mean, 
I know a lot of authors are would be tempted to be like, well, obviously the one with the most money. It, it, <laughs> that can <laughs> depend, I think. Yeah, I think it really can. Um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot in contracts beyond just the money. And, you know, there's rights involved was one more money, but it's world rights. And so, you know, you won't be able to retain those and sell them um, directly. There's a lot of different factors involved. And and I think people underestimate um, the power of the editor author relationship and how how a positive editor author relationship can really be incredible. You know, you hear, too, about these um, these amazing relationships that editors and authors had together that they just built their careers together, you know, that they just worked with one another. They found that they clicked and just continued, you know, to sell their work to that house with that editor. And, and it became a career, um, lifelong relationship. And I don't think that happens as frequently now. I think it is a little bit more common to, you know, uh, move around a little bit more than maybe it was, you know, 20 years ago. Um, but still, I think that, that those relationships are valuable and important. And I think both the editor and the author um, can benefit and learn a lot from each other, especially when they're early in their careers. Yeah, I agree. I think an editor, well, you want to make sure that your client and the editor have matching visions for the book. Yeah. You know, because somebody might be, for example, somebody might be offering you a lot of money, like the most amount of money if you have multiple offers. But they want your book to be something that it's not. They want you to make changes to it that maybe change what you thought or what you want your book to be. For example, I have a friend of mine who was fielding multiple offers from different houses and ultimately went with the one who whose vision aligned closest with hers. And like other houses were like, no, we want you to turn it into more of a romance. And that wasn't what interested her. So, you know, she went with the house, you know, I don't know the exact monies, but you know, she went with the house that resonated with her. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's just as important, if not more important than the amount of money that they are going to be offering you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is a little bit inside baseball-y, but also having a large advance may not necessarily be to an author's best advantage. You know, this, we can get into this in other s installments of the Publishing 101 series, kind of the expectations, what is, what makes a book a quote success? Mm -hmm. Because what makes a book success clearly depends on a number of factors, but one of those factors is the size of the advance. Mm -hmm. If your book, you know, hypothetically, let's say you get half a million dollars for your book, but you don't sell that many copies, that book will bomb. And you will have difficulty finding another deal because people will see that, you know, when, when you're, you know, when I was an editor anyway, and I had something in from a, an agent and I, you know, and I know that the author was previously published, I want to know why they're not staying with that house. I want to know why they're deciding to move on. You know, there could be as many different things like, oh, they didn't like the option book. You know, that, that happens. You know, and, and then sort of as I probe, sometimes I'll ask, well, what were their previous sale numbers? And I look that up. And if I don't think that they're, you know, that makes me a little bit hesitant. And then I have to weigh, okay, well, I like this project. Can we relaunch this person's career somehow? Because it's not necessarily the publishing house that would be hesitant to take on an author after their previous 
book has bombed, it will be the accounts. It'll be Barnes and Noble. Mm. It will be, you know, they'll be much more hesitant to take more copies of the author's next work. So, you know, those are, those are factors to take into consideration. You know, it also depends on the house, a house that does, a, you know, gives a lot of money, but doesn't put a lot of marketing support behind their author. Maybe that's not something you want to necessarily consider. Or another house that, you know, offers less money but has fantastic marketing and decides to make you a lead title and all that sort of stuff. I think, you know, those are all decisions that an agent should help you with and should guide you through um, and explain why <laughs> these are these are probably the best decisions to make. So, so that's kind of, you know, on this mission, I'm, I'm making decisions. So then let's talk about termination, you know, when an author and an agent decide to part ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there can be all kinds of reasons for that. Um, you know, sometimes you write a book and the agent says, you know, this just, this is outside the genres that I represent, or, you know, this just isn't something that I feel, you know, confident I can advocate for to the, you know, the best of um, my abilities. Um, so there can be reasons like that. There can be that you're dissatisfied with your agent. You don't, um, you don't like the vision that they have for your career or, you know, there's something else that, um, you know, you're not, you're not happy with and you want to move on. There can be lots of different reasons for ending that relationship. Um, but again, most author agent, um, agreements are at will, um, and again, you know me, I'm always telling you to read your contract. So read your author agent agreement too. That's a contract that you're signing. That is a business agreement. So read that. Um, um, it should most likely say that it's at will that either party can end it at any time. Um, and if that's the case, you would just, you know, inform your agent. Um, you know, I'm, I no longer want your services, I'm going to move on and try to find other representation or I'm going to move on and self-publish or whatever it is that you're going to do. Um, but if you want to, um, uh, break up with your agent, um, tell your agent, you can't just ghost on them. It's a business relationship. You need to formally end it. Um, and you should be aware that even after, um, you have parted ways, your agent will still earn commissions for the work that they've done on your behalf. So the books that they've sold for you, if you have, you know, advances coming in, um, after the fact, they'll still get their 15% commission. If you have royalties coming in from a book that they sold for you, they will still get their 15% commission because even though they're no longer working with you, they won't get a commission on any work that you do going forward, but for things that they have already handled for you, they'll continue to earn their percentage on. And that should be clear in your agency agreement as well. What would be reasons that you would fire a client? Oh, what would be reasons that an agent would fire a client? Um, You know, I, I am going to say this and, um, again, I have never fired a client, so I don't know, but, um, I could see myself needing to, um, needing to stop representing certain clients if, um, I felt as though 
their behavior um, in any way was, you know, harmful or detrimental or not something that I wanted to associate myself with. I think we see online, on social media, um, sometimes, you know, and I'm not talking about a difference of opinion on, you know, minor things or people who can agree to disagree or whatever. I, I mean, I'm pretty clearly talking about really egregious behavior, threatening people on social media, you know, harassing people, doing things that is clearly you know, reprehensible. Um, as an agent, I, you know, my, my brand identity is, is my reputation and I need, um, to make sure that I am not, um, not representing people who damage that reputation. Yep. I think, you know, other reasons, other reasons agent-author relationships become null and void or terminated. I know some agents who fire clients because their clients acted reprehensibly, not just on social media, but kind of underhanded, you know, went around their agent's back. Yeah. Um, that, you know, why would you, it's a, you know, why would you do that? Like, I know of somebody who was thinking about leaving their agent and but didn't tell their agent and queried somebody else instead and got an offer of representation. That is a huge, that is a no, no, that, that reflects extremely poorly on the author. You don't do that. It's like when you, let's say you're in a relationship, you're in a romantic relationship with someone and you're dating and you want to break up with them, but you also want to date somebody else. You break up with that person first before you start dating somebody else or it's cheating. And the same principle applies in agenting. You should, you know, mm -hmm. terminate all of your previous business entanglements before you move on to another one. You know, so I know agents who fired their clients for that. Um, I also know, you know, that oftentimes mutually agents and authors can come to agreements to part ways often because maybe the book that, you know, they were represented with just isn't working, it isn't selling. And so, you know, the agent is maybe saying, okay, maybe perhaps it's time to retire this and work on something else. And the author disagrees and wants to keep going out with it. Then, you know, that's just a difference of how to, difference of opinion of how to conduct business. So it's like a mutual mm -hmm. agreement. Okay, this no longer works. You know, you can, you know, they decide to part ways, no hard feelings, um, yeah, and I know a lot of writers who are on their second or third agent and they've just been in the business long enough that maybe they've evolved beyond their agent's tastes. Maybe their agent is kind of stuck in seeing them in one way and they want to take their career in a different way. So there are multiple reasons that the agent author relationship comes to an end and not all of them are bad. You know, a mm. lot of them are just kind of, you know, it's like a, the natural course of things and that's, that's perfectly fine. You know, sometimes the agent moves to a different agency and the author decides not to go with them. You know, a lot of things like that can't happen. So, so I think that's basically kind of all the questions I had about like the general overview of what you guys do, you know, from, mm -hmm. from querying to submission to, you know, the end of a relationship perhaps. So is there anything else we can think of that we want to talk about that uh, is about you know, agenting and querying and representation? 
Um, I think the one other thing that's worth mentioning in terms of what agents do as they represent you um, is that a lot of times your agent can be the bad guy. So normally, after you've got a book deal, you've signed the contract, and now you're working with your editor on your on your book, your agent, for the most part, will probably step back. They've done their job, and now their job is to get out of the way so that you and the editor can work on the book. Um, and so your agent will be there. They'll want to be informed about things. You know, they'll want to see the cover and all that stuff um, along with you and celebrate. But their active role is, you know, much diminished at that point. Um, however, if you are running into issues, if you're having trouble um, communicating with your editor or your publicist or, you know, someone else at the publishing publishing house, if people aren't getting back to you, or if you have some other, um, concern, um, it can be a really good idea to go to your agent with that concern and have your agent advocate for you so that you can kind of step back and preserve your relationships and the agent can kind of be the bad guy and say, Hey, you know, where's this, you know, what's happening with that. Um, and they can be kind of a little bit aggressive on your behalf and then, you know, step back into the shadows again, once things kind of equalize again. So that's another thing I think, um, about having an agent that people might not necessarily be aware of because it seems oftentimes like the agent's job is over after the contract's been signed. Um, but they can still be involved and be beneficial to you. Um, even after that point. Yeah, my agent is generally like some, you know, this hasn't really come up in my relationship with my publisher, but if I had a disagreement, for example, I'm going to use this one. It's not a huge one or anything, but I remember seeing cover comps for my, for Winter Song and not liking any of them, <laughs> really. Um, and, you know, I told my agent that, look, I'm not all that fond of this. And so she went back and said, you know, look, maybe can we try a different direction? You know, I, I, I wanted to keep my relationship with my publisher, you know, pretty sweet and, you know, conflict free. So I, my agent was able to step in and be like, Hey, this isn't working for us. Why don't we try something else? Um, you know, so if I, sometimes the agent is great for being the person who will have the hard conversation on your behalf. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And if you are, I'm not particularly awkward about asking business questions. I, um, like I've worked in the business. So if I want to ask, okay, so what are we doing for my book? What are the numbers that we've got? I'm not, I'm not awkward about asking those questions because I know what those numbers mean, but you can also have your agent ask those things on your behalf. You know, what are you going to be doing for you for this book? What are you going to do marketing wise and maybe push for things, that you, so you don't have to worry about it. And if, if the publisher, you know, sends emails about business related things that you don't quite understand, then the agent should be able to clarify that for you. So really the, the relationship between you and your editor is kind of more about the artistic side of the book, about making the, you know, a book, a work of art. And then the relationship your agent and editor have is business is much more business related. I think that's kind of the the ideal balance going forward when you've sold your book. Um, So yeah, I don't know. Any final or parting thoughts? No, I think that's it. Okay, so then let's move on to what we're working on. So let's go into what Kelly is working on, being a literary agent. (laughs) 
Yay! I'm very excited. Um, you know, it's kind of my career come full circle because my first job in publishing was at a literary agency. My first several jobs actually was, um, working in literary agencies and I really loved it and was convinced that that's what I was going to do. I was going to, you know, work my way up through the system. Literary agents are kind of essentially apprenticeships. You know, yeah. you start out <laughs> assisting someone and then you kind of become an associate agent where you're still doing an assistant workload, but you're also kind of slowly building your own client list. And then, um, you know, once your workload shifts enough that you're doing more agenting than you are assisting, you become a junior agent and senior agents are mentoring you and you become a senior agent, you know, and so you kind of like work your way up. Um, and that's kind of the traditional way to do it. And so that's what I had always assumed the start of my career would be. I started working uh, as an assistant at a literary agency, and I just figured I'd climb up that ladder. But my career took a big turn when I moved to Minnesota. And, um, I jumped into the publishing side of the fence because Minnesota, Minneapolis has some amazing, um, independent publishers out here and a really vibrant literary community. So I switched to the publishing side of the fence and I became an expert in publishing contracts, which is not something that I ever thought <laughs> that I would uh, do, but really actually surprisingly enjoyed, um, and ran with. And I've been doing that for about five years now. And I always knew that I wanted to get back to agenting again. And I also knew that the traditional, you know, apprenticeship style was kind of, I'd missed the window for that. Um, I wasn't really in New York anymore. Um, there wasn't a lot of opportunities for me to assist someone because assisting, you really do kind of need to be in the office because you need to be pushing the paper and doing the things. And it's hard to assist someone remotely. Um, so I knew that wasn't going to work for me, but I also knew that I now had this really comprehensive, um, knowledge in publishing contracts, which I knew was really valuable. And I thought that I would be able to join an agency, um, on the strength and depth of my publishing experience. And, um, that's what I started doing. Um, you know, I began researching agencies and reaching out, um, and I have joined DeForio Literary Agency. Uh, I'm so thrilled. I'm really excited. Uh, so I am open to queries and, um, I'm, it's going to be a really great year. I'm really looking forward to it. Yay. So what are you looking for? I am looking for middle grade, young adult, and women's fiction across all genres. Uh, so contemporary, historical, adventure, sci-fi, fantasy, for sure. Um, magical realism, any other genre that you've got out there or mix and match um, in those categories is something I definitely want to see. I love character-driven stories. I love stories about friendship or found family. I like romances. I do, um, enjoy romances in my books. I like shipping characters. I'm sure I've talked about that lots and lots on the podcast, but I'm really interested in, um, in, in relationships that are not just romantic, um, or other types of relationships in my fiction. I love ensemble fiction, like, you know, six of crows where you see how all these people, intersect and interact and the individual relationships that are spread out across the group. Um, I love that kind of thing. So I would really love to see that 
type of story land in my query inbox. Um, I am very interested in finding um, own voices books, uh, books written by uh, people of color, by LGBTQIA people, um, people with disabilities, um, any kind of inclusive narrative. I really want um, to see a lot of that in my inbox. Um, and, you know, if you can make me laugh or cry, I want to read it. <laughs> if you could do either of those things, I know it's pretty broad. I haven't sat down yet and really thought about like a manuscript wish list. A lot of agents use that hashtag um, or have you know a, a list up on that blog of the specific things that they that they want. The only thing I can think of off the top of my head that I really want is if you have a YA novel that is essentially the uh, Life is Strange video game, I want that novel. <laughs> I want to read that too. <laughs> I desperately want that novel, which is about like really intense like friendship and like kind of science fiction-y, fantasy, magical realism, like high school, teenage life and love and oh, it's so good. So um, if you've got that, I want it. um so let's see more specifically are there particular writers that you like whose oeuvre or something in that vein that you would be looking for (sighs) something in that vein that i am looking for so i already mentioned six of crows which is a heist story i love heist stories like heist movies are like my favorite thing Um, so definitely Lee Bardugo, um, her style I think is great. And I love, um, what else have I really loved? I really loved, um, Marissa Meyer's Lunar Chronicles. I loved the ensemble nature of that. I loved the fantasy. I loved the world building, um, in those books. So I think something like that would be great. Who else do I really about middle grade. Ah, middle grade is so good. Um, what do I want in middle grade? All I can think of right now is your middle grade that hasn't been published. (laughs) (laughs) That is is like in a closet that you're working on somewhere. Um, it's it's down the line. I'll get to it at some point. Um, I can, I'm trying to think of specific authors in middle grade. I know that what I like in my middle grade fiction is adventure. I really like adventure and whimsy in my middle grade fiction. Um, Brian Ferry has the Grim Jinx Rebellion, which I think that series is really adorable and great. I love that one. Um, I loved, um... Oh, I can't, the author is escaping me right now. Ember and Spark and who wrote those books? Like City My of Ember? Is just, yes, City of Ember. Jean Du... It... I know, uh, I can't think of it. <laughs> okay, I'm going to, well, I'll, I'll look it up and when I write it I'll the show it up, notes. Yeah. <laughs> I loved those. I loved those books. Um, I think they're great. And then in terms of women's fiction, which is the other, um, the other genre that I am open to or category, um, I love Lori Moore. I love Jhumpa Lahiri. Um, I love, um, Julia Glass, um, who wrote Three Ferns. Um, so in women's fiction, I really like, um, you know, just interesting and complicated, Women, I like family sagas. I like 
the exploration of family relationships a lot. Um, I do like chiclet if it's funny, if it's comedic, I'm, I'm down for that. Um, so, you know, cute, funny Bridget Jones-esque things I think are great. I think chiclet is a little hard right now. Yeah, it is. But I think there's room for it now. I think probably in like the late. 90s, early 2000s, we just had... It was really saturated. It was really saturated with chiclet. And I think for a very long time, it sort of got, like, the the name got changed to sort of, quote, commercial women's fiction. Yeah. But even so, I think a lot of people felt a little bit of fatigue, sort of the way we kind of felt, like, post-Twilight, like, the paranormal fatigue. We were just like, no, we don't want it anymore. But I think, I think enough time has passed. I think maybe chiclet will be coming back. I mean, I would love to read something funny. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's really it. I want something funny in women's fiction. Um, yeah, make me laugh. Yeah, I think, I think, and I also think humor is one of the hardest things to do in fiction. I think humor is a lot harder th- to do than drama. I think that is actually true across everything, like acting as well, like people who are great comic actors. I think it's really hard. I think it's harder being a comic actor than it is being a dramatic actor. So I think humor Mm -hmm. is extremely difficult to do. So I'd love to read a book that would make me laugh as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess one last question about what you are looking for. What do you think makes a good story? Just at its heart, a good story. So I remember when we were first in our critique book, critique group, and we were just talking about things and you were like, well, you know, I was telling you what was happening in my book and you're like, okay, but what's the story? (laughs) Yeah, no, there's plot and then there's story. Um, you know, and of course I'm sure that whatever I said back then was much more elegant than I'm going to say now, um, on the spot, but, um, you know, I think the story is is really that, that heartbeat or essence. It's that, um, distilled thing in a book. It's not the plot. It's not the what happens. It's not the who, what, where, um, you know, it's that, it's that more integral, um, thing that's woven into the fabric. It's the voice and the people. I'm really character driven. Characters are hugely important to me. If I don't care about your characters, then I don't care what happens to them. It doesn't matter how thrilling it is or how interesting it is or whatever. I'm going to be super bored if I don't connect, um, to your characters. And, you know, when I, when I say the story, you know, I mean that, that very, that very simple, um, thing, you know, is it, is it, is it boy meets girl? Is it, you know, best friends break up? Like what is the, what is the human experience in the heart of the story that you are communicating? Because, you know, ultimately somewhere deep down, there has to be some element of human experience that you're trying to communicate you know, no matter how, you know, paranormal or sci-fi or whimsical your story is, you know, ultimately we tell stories, um, about people or about, um, animals who are people or other things who are people. (laughs) We, We tell, you know, we tell stories about beings and about, um, you know, humanity and consciousness. And so what is that? What is that thing that connects, connects you? Or me 
to your work. I'm not yeah. saying it elegantly. <laughs> no, I think you are. I think the story. I think the story is basically the narrative of of human experience. Yeah. Whatever you choose to tell it about, I would sometimes say to people, "What is the point?" Yeah. <laughs> basically, and the question is not necessarily. You don't need to sum it up in one sentence or anything like that. But I was like, "What is the takeaway?" I'm from this book, what, what emotional experience am I supposed to take away from this narrative? What am I supposed to feel? What am I supposed to get out of this book? Where's it going? What is the point? And for me, books that work have a quote point to them. And this is mm-hmm. why I was having such trouble with book two at first was cause I was like, what is the point of this book? <laughs> what is, what is the takeaway I want to have what is the feeling I wanted to have at the end of this book what is why did I read this what was the journey I went on and that to Mm -hmm. me is the story is what is the point the point of your book is the story the plot is whatever I mean there are plenty of books out there that have interesting characters and interesting premises and things happen but there's no point to it I can think of a couple Mm. that I won't name right now but there are a couple of books like that, whereas like really great writing, really great characterization, really great premise, and stuff happens, but I don't care. That's really it. If a book has a point, I will care. Yeah. I'm interested and invested enough to see what happens at the end, and I think that's a book that has a point. So that's that's my advice. And all of this, I don't think you have to keep in mind before you write, but after you write, sort of look back on your work and just be like, so what was the point of that? <laughs> Why did I watch that? Or why did I read that? Why did I write yeah. that? Yeah. When you close a book, you have a feeling at the end of it. You know, like as you turn that final page and you close the book and you put it down, you're left with something. And and whatever it is that you're left with, that's the point of the book. Yeah. All right. Yay. So you guys, definitely if you have polished, finished manuscripts... I think you should, and that fall into what Kelly's looking for. You should definitely query her. We'll put her contact. Mm-hmm. We'll put the information in the podcast post mm-hmm. so we can gloss over what I'm working on because what I'm working on is the same <laughs> thing. But, uh, yeah. So I talked to my editor about a revised delivery date, which is in April. And I feel much better about that. And, you know, I, I it gives me some time and I, over the holidays and everything, I was thinking much more about my book and the story and where it was going. So I feel I feel much more focused and determined and I feel better about having a schedule about writing, about knowing how much I have to write every day as opposed to this, well, I don't know what's going on with my life, which was basically everything that happened after November. So like, it's like, ah. but yeah, that's, you know, I'm not working on anything else. It's going to be like this until April, you guys. So we can skip uh-huh. that part for me. <laughs> Uh, so what are you reading? Um, this week I read Three Dark Crowns by Kendare Blake. And I loved it. Um, I was so, 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 so um, obsessed with that book. I was like reading it um, like under my desk at work, like trying to finish the last <laughs> little bit. Because I couldn't focus, you know, I kept thinking about it. And I was like, I just need to finish it and then I can get on with my day. Um, and... The ending totally surprised me, although you and I had a conversation about it later, and you were like, this super obvious thing. And I was like, well, yes, now that is obvious. (laughs) (laughs) 
but we were talking, we had this whole conversation about how, like, for me, when I read, I have two, like, reading brains. I have my, like, pleasure reading brain and then my critical reading brain. And um, when I'm reading for pleasure, I don't see twists coming. I'm, I am shocked every single time, no matter what. I'm always like, oh my God. <laughs> uh, and I was reading this book for pleasure. And so I totally did not see the ending coming. Of course, it was foreshadowed, you know, from minute one, um, that it would turn out the way that it did. But, uh, I was shocked and it was lovely to be surprised. I loved, I love being surprised by books. Um, and so, yeah, I just really, I really enjoyed that book. It's about, um, three queens, they're triplets, and, um, they're raised to rule this island. And, um, although there's always three born, there can only be one queen. And so once they reach a certain age, um, one queen must defeat the others by killing her sisters and then rising to power. And then the cycle begins again and three new queens are born. Um, so we meet all three of these young women. Um, and one of the things that I really liked about it is that I didn't uh, hate any of them. I liked all three of them, but at the same time, like I didn't, I, I didn't like any three of them because whenever I was in one POV, I hated the other two. And then as soon as I switched to the next POV, I was like, no, I hate these two now. So I was rooting for them all at the same time, which of course you, that's not going to work out so well for me or for them because <laughs> there can only be one. So, um, I really liked it. I thought it was really well done. I highly recommend yeah, I, yeah, basically Kelly was talking about it and she's like, oh yeah, the t twist took me by surprise. And I was like, this, and give it away in the very beginning. She's like, well, it does now. Like, <laughs> like uh, now that you point out that super obvious fact, yes. I don't know. I, I mean, when I read for pleasure, I don't, my reading for pleasure brain and my critical brain are actually the same brain. <laughs> like, um, and I'm often pretty good at, at figuring twists out, not even figuring, like consciously looking for the twist to, you know, to solve the twist. I'm just pretty good at picking up subconsciously the clues the writer has been letting me know what the twist is. So, you know, I remember this particularly because I was reading a Jodi Picoult novel, Plain Truth, and, it, you know, it's, it involves the murder of a child at the very beginning. And I read it and then I was like, oh, I know who it is. And then I it was just reading to the end to be like, yep, that was right. <laughs> That was within like the first 50 pages. And that's not all that atypical for me. I think in mysteries in particular, maybe that's why I don't read a lot of mysteries all that often. It's because twists don't often take me by surprise. Um, the exception being the ending of Gone Girl. Like, yeah, I don't think that was even on my radar as a possibility. Like that was dark. <laughs> it was not on my radar as a possibility either, but I thought it was perfect mm -hmm. as an ending. I was like, yep, this is exactly the ending this book should have. And I did not see this coming at all. <laughs> like, um, so that was kind of the only real exception I think I had to that. And that's the same thing as I remember reading Girl on a Train and I was like, I think I know who it is. I was right. You know, I think I know yeah. what the twist is. Yep, I was right. So it, I think for me, perhaps that's not why. That's why I don't read a lot of mysteries or thrillers all that often. Mm -hmm. um, so I finished Wayfair by Alexander Backen, which mm -hmm. I thoroughly enjoyed, and I just started Truth Witch by Susan Dennard. Both of them being mm -hmm. pub crawl alumna. 
and I'm also reading a galley of The Ship Beyond Time by Heidi Heilig, which is the sequel to her first book, uh, The Girl from Everywhere. So, and I'm really enjoying that too. So that's what I'm reading. Awesome. Yeah. Anything else or? Um, I am reading I'm Judging You by um, Lovey Ajayi, I think is her name. Uh, and it is hilarious. <laughs> it is um, just a, it's nonfiction. It's just kind of, you know, a, a book about judging people. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and it is hilarious. And it's got a great cover. It's a white cover with a red lollipop on it. And the lollipop has a little, a little emoji face that's giving side eye. <laughs> and it's, um, it's a fantastic cover. And it's a really great book. I only started it last night and I only read for about 15 minutes before I fell asleep. But um, I actually had to put it down because I was laughing too much and I knew I was going to like wake myself up. <laughs> it didn't stop. So um, that's what I'm reading now. Awesome. So any off-menu recommendations? Off-menu recommendations? Um, I've been watching... <laughs> I've been watching a dumb Netflix show again. Uh, I started watching Limitless, <laughs> which is, is a show one? on Netflix. Is that the one based on the Bradley Cooper movie? I think so. And Bradley Cooper is actually in it. So I wouldn't be surprised. He's like a guest role in it. But yeah, the basic premise is like a guy um, finds a drug that enables him to access 100% of his brain. Yep, that's like definitely that, a Bradley know, Cooper movie. Like. I don't yeah. know how many years ago now, but <laughs> yeah, he, when he takes this pill, he can access a hundred percent of his brain. And so he takes the pill and he starts, um, consulting with the FBI. And of course there's all these crazy side effects to the pill and all this other stuff. Um, it is complete, just popcorn, you know, I, there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing revolutionary about it, but I'm enjoying that. <laughs> what about you? So I binged. All of the Grand Tour, which is an Amazon original show. So I used to love Top Gear, the BBC show about basically about cars. And um, Jeremy Clarkson, James May, and Richard Hammond were the co-hosts of that show for a very, very long time. And then Jeremy got fired because he's a terrible human being. He's like legit a horrible person. And I don't don't want to hide that he's a horrible human being. Um, but he's very funny and I kind of hate that I like it. Um, but anyway, so he, he got fired from top gear and Amazon gave him a ton of money to basically start the spinoff of top gear for their, for them and his friends, James May and Richard Hammond came along with him. So the show is called the grand tour. The format's a little bit different from top gear they do a little bit more of the crazy stunt stuff that they used to do on Top Gear rather than reviewing cars, but they do talk about new cars coming out and, and different things, and they kind of go to different countries all over the world, um, various, you know, various things they need to make a, you know, they need to make a dune buggy, and they, you know, kind of come up with these really ridiculous stunts, but they're always quite funny. At least I find them very funny, uh, even though I know Jeremy's a horrible human being. But I do find it funny. I binged all of them. It is something that uh, I don't know. I don't even know. I like cars to an extent, but I hate driving. So, 
<laughs> like, uh, my dad was a pretty big car enthusiast. So when I was little, he used to take me to car shows and things like that. Um, particularly my dad loves classic cars and in California, it's, there are actually a lot of classic cars there because the climate is kind of great. Um, it's dry and it's pretty temperate. Um, so you can upkeep your classic cars pretty well and not have to worry about rust or anything like that. So we used to go to a lot of different car shows. And so my dad and I, and my little brother used to watch, uh, Top Gear together. And at home, Top Gear is actually the show that I kind of put on in the background while I'm doing other things. Um, because it's kind of mindlessly funny enough that I can kind of look and see what they're doing. And I enjoy, you know, the car talk and stuff like that. And so Grand Tour, I was home over Christmas with my family and we binged all of them. We just watched all of them and highly enjoyed them. Like I said, I know Jeremy's a horrible human being, but... I thought it was funny and it was nice, nice mind palette cleanser for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. I know exactly what you mean. Um, so yeah, I don't have anything else. I think off many ways that I'm listening to or reading or uh, watching. So that's it for me. I don't believe we have any new reviews or questions. So, you know, as always, definitely send us questions. You can hashtag AskPubCrawl or email us or, send, you know, send us a comment, you know, tweet at us, whatever. We can answer your questions and also leave us a review. Please, we do enjoy mm-hmm. reading them. They make us... We do. They make us feel better. Um, and, you know, Kelly is externally validated, so she loves them. <laughs> it's true. All right. That's all for this week. Next week, we're going to be talking about submissions to carry on our Publishing 101 uh, series yet again. So as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, Kelly, at bookishchick on Twitter or my website, penandparsley.com. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter, or my website, sjjones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed and created by Aaron Bowman, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye.